Welcome to our continued look at the race for the White House with Real Clear Politics podcast, In the Arena. I'm correspondent Alexis Simendinger. In the final 48 days of the election, our reporters and editors are stepping back each Thursday to dissect election developments and take a closer look at 2016 battlegrounds. In our three-part podcast this week, we turn to three of the nation's most interesting and expert academics to give us the scoop. Real Clear's polling analyst, David Byler, asked Dartmouth College political scientist Brendan Nyan why voters cling to myths and misconceptions during elections. Because we're in suspense ahead of the first of three highly anticipated presidential debates Monday, I asked Professor Kathleen Hall Jamison, director of the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg Public Policy Center, whether Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump could lock up wavering voters in 90 televised minutes. In our Battlegrounds segment, managing editor Emily Gooden, with help from Franklin and Marshall College polling director G. Terry Madonna, explains how four of Pennsylvania's 67 counties could decide whether Clinton or Trump capture the state's prize 20 electoral college votes. We welcome your feedback at realclearpolitics.com. First up, you'll hear from David Byler, who talks with Professor Brendan Nyan about how voters may be stubborn, but not always stubborn about facts. President Barack Obama was born in the United States, period. Now, we all want to get back to making America strong and great again. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. So if you've been following the news in the last week or so, you know that Donald Trump recently made that statement on the birther issue. And just a quick 45-second guide for those who aren't familiar with it. President Obama was born in the United States. He was born in Hawaii, and he's a citizen who is constitutionally completely qualified for the presidency. To most Americans, these are uncontroversial statements. But for the last few years, Donald Trump has been actively attempting to cast doubt on the idea that President Obama was born in the U.S., and this is known as birtherism. Uh, Trump didn't create the theory, but for the last few years, he's been sort of the most vocal uh, public proponent of this particular falsehood. So on Friday, he attempted to backtrack and say that President Obama is a citizen. And so we're going to use this whole weird multi-year episode to talk about a really important issue that comes up in a lot of different ways in American politics, which is misinformation. Specifically, we're going to talk about how false beliefs like birtherism or conspiracies about September 11th or fill in the blank are generated, uh, how they spread, and how to make sure that you don't get taken in by something like that. So I think we have really the perfect guest to talk about this. Uh, we have Brendan Nyhan uh, from Dartmouth College. He's a professor there in the government department. He's a contributor at The Upshot, which is a really great sort of quantitative policy and politics blog over at the New York Times. He's done a lot of research on misinformation, and he also just generally knows a lot about politics and government. So thanks for coming on the show, Brendan. My pleasure, great to be here. Okay, great. So first question is kind of, a, I have kind of a battery of questions, but what I'm trying to get at here is if there's some sort of life cycle or unified theory uh, to some of these misperceptions. and. Uh, I guess to me, it's just astounding that something like birtherism could ever get off the ground in a day and age when everyone can just look up sort of the facts on their phone. Uh, so my questions would be like, how does uh, misperception or misinformation 
come into existence? Who starts it? And how does it spread? And finally, does it just sort of fade into irrelevance or is do these things get replaced by actual fact and information, if you will? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's certainly one that social scientists are, are still, including myself, are still trying to figure out. I, I, don't, I wouldn't say that there's a unified theory of misperceptions, in part because they come from so many different places. You've got cases like the death panel myth that was which was coined by a political elite, Sarah Palin, in a Facebook post. Um, you have other cases like the birther myth, which was uh, came from the fringes of the political system, I would say, by activists and, um, and, 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 and sort of fairly obscure commentators, but then was embraced uh, by political elites. Uh, and then finally you have um, cases like the 9-11 inside job myth really came uh, almost purely from the grassroots and had uh, very little elite backing, uh, yet came to be uh, widespread over time. So there's there's lots of different paths for a misperception to become widespread. What I think is important to note, though, is that once they become established, uh, we do see some common patterns. Um, first, these controversial, these misperceptions about controversial political figures and issues. Um, divide people sharply along partisan lines. Mm. Right? So not surprisingly, Republicans are much more likely to believe President Obama wasn't born in this country than Democrats, right? Um, and we also see that these misperceptions tend to be very persistent and hard to debunk. So the weapons of mass destruction myth, that the claim that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction for the invasion of Iraq persisted for years and years after it was falsified. Um, similarly, the, the birther myth has persisted for years despite uh, overwhelming evidence. To the contrary, even including the release of President Obama's long-form birth certificate in 2011. That's really interesting, especially that last part. So why do you think these specific beliefs are so entrenched? Do they, I don't know, serve like a partisan purpose? Do they maybe comport with some pre-existing beliefs that people have. Uh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm curious about why these things are, are so resilient, if you have thoughts on that. Well, people, we all as human beings have a tendency to believe things um, that reinforce our predispositions. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't always do that, um, but we have that tendency. And so in politics, it can be easy for people to um, fall victim to false or, mis or unsupported claims that seem to confirm their political worldview or their opinion of someone, um, in, in particular, say, a politician that they don't like. Um, so we may not be skeptical enough of information when it confirms our suspicion that there's something uh, untoward about a, a, a disliked political figure, for instance. Um, and, and, and likewise, when we're told that that information might be false or unsupported, uh, we can have a, a bias against that information that's contradicting an existing view or predisposition mm -hmm. that we have. So that tendency, which is called disconfirmation bias, can make it hard to debunk these myths once they're out there. Uh, people may think of reasons to ignore that evidence. Um, they may counter-argue it, counter it. They may think of uh, reasons it's not convincing. They may bring other rationales to mind and so forth. And in the process, um, 
not have their mind change or even in, in some extreme cases potentially come to believe in that view even more strongly. So it's a very difficult challenge. Um, and, you know, I think we are at a time when people are more vulnerable to those kinds of myths because polarization has become so intense hmm. on the uh, across the political spectrum and, and especially negative partisanship. Uh, the, the strength of, of partisan dislike of people who affiliate with the other party is higher as far as we can tell than it's ever been. We have a lot of listeners who... Uh, really don't want to get taken in by wrong information. And that's one reason they come to RCP is that they trust us to be sort of faithful to the facts. So if you're an everyday news consumer, if you're someone who's listening to this podcast, uh, what's the best way to detect and make sure you don't get taken in by misinformation other than, of course, obviously refreshing the RCP homepage all day long. Um, and a quick second part of this question is, uh, how do you think that sort of journalists or other people whose uh, job it is to convey information to the public uh, should write about misinformation? Because I think everybody who uh, writes, you know, any sort of thing for a publication uh, might want to write about an issue like birtherism, but we also don't want to sort of inadvertently elevate the status of uh, some false theory or accidentally present things in a way that makes some false belief stick in our readers' heads. So yeah, just any guidance you have for our readers and for people who are sort of making content. Sure, well, those, are, those are both really important issues. Uh, as far as what people can do to avoid being taken in by misinformation, I think my suggestions will be pretty obvious, right? You know, so avoid, um, confining yourself to an echo chamber of like-minded views, um, you know, try to get information from different kinds of, of credible sources, especially information uh, that is um, not filtered through the prism of, of some particular commentator's worldview. I mean, of course, all news reporting is selective in its own way. Um, there's, there's no... Uh, way to avoid that for us as human beings, but, you know, if you're only getting your news from one side of the political spectrum, you may be more vulnerable to these kinds of, of claims. Now, with all of that said, I, I, there's, no, there's no magical solution to, to uh, you know, there's no source I can say that will give you every uh, possible piece of information you will need or debunk every claim you'll hear. I mean, of course, uh, you, you should consult the political fact checkers, which I think do their best, despite their limitations and sometimes errors, to uh, set the record straight when people are making false and misleading claims uh, in the political sphere. I, I think there's a lot to be learned from them. They're certainly not perfect, but they're working very hard and doing their very best. Um, and, and I think they are quite accurate, careful, and thorough on the whole, uh, even though, like everybody, I sometimes would dissent from particular conclusions they reach. Mm -hmm. um, so there are ways you can inform yourself, but I think the second part of your question is the most important one. I don't think it should be people's responsibility to sort through every claim they hear in politics. That can quickly become an unreasonable burden to place on people. We shouldn't have to be, as, as one social scientist called it, uh, walking encyclopedias. Right? Mm -hmm. There's just no way. People are busy. They have other things going on yeah. in their life. We need political institutions that encourage politicians to make accurate statements and that present information in the media in a way that helps people make, form accurate beliefs. 
right, and correct correct false beliefs that they might hold. Right? So I think we've been we're being failed by the political system when uh, when these misperceptions spread. People are should be thought of here as the victims, not the perpetrators. Right? We are all. Uh, limited by human psychology. There's no way around that, and that's not going to change. Right? What we can change is the institutions um, that of our political system, right? And the and the and the media, the the practices of the media organizations that deliver information to voters. Okay. So what can journalists do? You know, I, I'll give you a couple of suggestions, um, and you know, we can talk about them because there's a lot to be said on this subject. Yeah. Uh, w- one thing is to be careful about elevating fringe misperceptions and making them more salient, which is exactly what you, you pointed at in your question. Uh, there's a risk that uh, too much coverage can actually bring attention to claims that otherwise wouldn't be wi- widely disseminated. I think it's especially important when the claims are truly fringe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I'll, and, and you know, I'm gonna undermine my own argument by giving you an example um, which I hope Go is instructive it. and therefore worth the cost of elevating this particular <laughs> sure. false claim. Um, but there was an article um, on Salon about a, a conspiracy theory about the Sandy Hook shootings, which was circulating online. And it had not crossed over into mainstream public debate. Mm-hmm. And my concern was it was bringing that theory to lots of people who wouldn't otherwise have been exposed to it. Yes, a lot of people had seen videos on YouTube, but in a relative sense, very few Americans had been exposed to this argument. Yeah. And now a national publication was taking those and circulating them much more widely, even though no reputable mainstream figure had embraced them. I, I, I think it's important to be cautious at that point. There's always going to be a kind of freak show on the internet, and it's easy to cover that in a way that exaggerates how many, how consequential it is. and and inadvertently to bring that misinformation to a larger audience. So I, I think with so many reporters working online and covering on what's going on online, there's a real danger there. Okay. I also think our political coverage needs to be more aggressive in holding elites accountable for making misleading statements. Okay. But the rationale for that might, is a little different than people might think. The research suggesting, as I as I discussed earlier, that it can be difficult to change people's minds. I, I don't think there's a there are ways we can, that we can talk about that coverage might be more might be able to more effectively present the case to readers in a way that would help them to form more accurate beliefs. Um, but media coverage is not a silver bullet here for changing public beliefs. Right? Okay. I mean, you only have to take the case of the weapons of mass destruction myth, right, which was everywhere. Yeah. I mean, the coverage after the war that we didn't find weapons of mass destruction was everywhere, and then that was not a case where the media coverage was falsely balanced or anything else, and yet that belief persisted for a very long time, right? But what what that what media coverage that holds politicians accountable does is it creates disincentives for politicians to make those claims in the first place, and they're okay. often, those politicians are often the ones who either create or um, popularize these myths and help them to go mainstream. Right, so it's important to hold them accountable. And I've done some research suggesting that the threat of fact-checking may help dissuade elites oh, that's from making false claims. Um, so that, that's what I think is, is most important. So, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm against the kind of he said, she said style of coverage because I think it misinforms 
readers about the state of the evidence. Journalists' duty is to the facts, and if the facts overwhelmingly support one side on 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 a matter that there is an objective answer, reporters should state that claim. Right, they are, they're doing a disservice to their readers otherwise. Um, we should just remember that that approach won't always change people's minds when they encounter it. Is there a reason that certain misconceptions circulate and others don't see the light of day? And I, I want to put this a little, little differently, and I think it'll be more clear this way. So, you know, if we had a third person on this podcast and he or she was a really talented, imaginative fiction writer... Uh, he or she could probably come up with a bunch of possible misconceptions or mistruths that were never generated or maybe were generated but never really caught on. So uh, it's totally fine if the answer to this is that it's random and that we don't know or something like that. But is there a reason that we have the misperceptions we have instead of the the ones that we don't? Uh, You know, um, is it a random process or is there some kind of uh, I don't know, mechanism that, you know, uh, generates these specific theories and gives them all, gives some of them at least some commonality? That's a great question. It's a really deep one and one that um, I've only, I think, come to appreciate in, in recent years as I've studied this problem more. It's just very hard to think about what causes certain misperceptions to emerge precisely because, as you suggested, we can't detail the infinite set of potential misperceptions that were never tried in the mm-hmm. first place, right? So in, in mathematical terms, the, the, the denominator is unknown. Yeah. And so it's very, it's very difficult. We, have to be, we should be careful about inferring too much from the misperceptions we do observe because we don't see the ones that uh, are never, uh, either never stated in the first place or at least aren't prominent enough to become visible to us. Right. You can certainly see this if you look at the fact checkers. Um, one of the flaws of the fact checking model is that they typically only fact check a statement once. Hmm. But if you think about the, the, how often those uh, fact check statements are repeated, there are, there are a very large percentage that are only said once, and a tiny handful that are that are repeated over and over and over and over again. Right. But they each only get one fact check. So death panels or the birther myth might be repeated 100 or 500 or 1,000 times by prominent figures. Those might only get one fact check. And so is someone's random verbal misstatement on an issue that nobody cares about in a TV interview that nobody saw. Right? Right. So there's, a, there's, a, there's a kind of mismatch in our allocation of effort often between the importance uh, of a statement and, and, and its prominence. Um, so to, to, to go back to your point, though, um, you know, with those caveats in mind, um, I think it's, um, well, well, let me say a couple things. Um, for misperceptions, the ones that I'm most interested in are the ones that people seem to want to believe for some reason. Um, mm-hmm. ones that involve what we call motivated reasoning, right? The, yeah. the, the, the idea we talked about that your predispositions might affect your willingness to hold a certain belief. And Vaccine misperceptions, which you mentioned, are another example of that outside the political realm. People have, I should say, parents overwhelmingly vaccinate their children in the United States. Public opinion overall is still extremely supportive of vaccines, but there are some people who have strong predispositions about or hesitations toward vaccines. 
And for those people, information about why they might be dangerous or risky will often um, receive a, a, a relatively favorable reception. Right? So those people are vulnerable. There's a, there's a potential audience out there for myths about vaccines, just like there are there's a large potential audience for myths about uh, a president um, who comes from one of the two major parties. Uh, so it seems like a commonality is uh, is coinciding with people's predispositions. That's not always true, right? There's, 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 there's certainly lots of misperceptions about things that people don't have very strong views about. But I would say among the misperceptions we think are important, the ones that matter in politics and policy and public health, they're often linked to these strong points of view or aspects of people's identity. Um, mm. That's why they're, that's part of why they're consequential, right? They're, that's, it's, it's part of how they think about, it's part of how some people think about the president of the United States or whether to vaccinate their child or some other uh, issue or topic of importance. So um, there are certainly other kinds of, of misperceptions out there. We haven't talked much about conspiracy theories specifically. There's a whole set of, ideas about those and why people bloop them. But I think uh, a critical aspect for a lot of the cases we've talked about at least is is the role of our, our, our motivations. Uh, and if I can add one last clarification yeah. on that, when I say motivated reasoning, it's really important to understand two things that might not be obvious to your audience. First, I'm not suggesting that people are intentionally uh, doing this, right? We all have this tendency as human beings and it's largely unconscious. Mm -hmm. um, the other idea that's important to point out is that uh, being this isn't a problem of people not being educated or knowledgeable. In some cases, people who are more educated and knowledgeable are better able to filter the information they receive and to coincide with their predispositions. Uh, and so they may actually have factual beliefs that are more closely aligned with their political viewpoints, for instance, than people who have less education or knowledge. So it's not a simple story. Uh, about about people being uneducated. In your research and experience, what information tends to stick with voters and what doesn't? Gaffes are a great example of the disconnect between the political news audience and everybody else. They seem like huge news to reporters and academics who follow the news closely like myself and people who read lots of political coverage. But the average person barely hears about them at all and probably never uh, comes across them. Um, they just, um, they don't tend to leave an impact in part because a lot, most people don't even hear about them. And even if they mm -hmm. do, they're very unlikely to change people's minds. Um, so, uh, so what does leave an imprint? Well, you know, political scientists think about elections primarily in terms of the structural conditions of the race, what we call the fundamentals, right? right? Which is probably a, a, a term that some of your, uh, listeners have heard before, but the number one uh, fundamental is, of course, the state of the economy. Right? Is the economy doing well or doing poorly? That comes through to the public, and you can track public opinion um, corresponding to the state of the objective economy. Uh, you know that public opinion tracks that pretty closely, and mm -hmm. you will see candidate messages that reinforce when it's to their advantage. Right, so if the economy is unusually good, the incumbent party will base their campaign on the state of the economy. If the economy is unusually bad, the opposition party will base their their message on the economy. Um, we what's a bit confusing about the United States case is we've had a series of elections in recent years where the economy's been okay to pretty good, 
Um, you know, with the, you know, with the possible exception of the, the, the post financial crisis, uh, situation in 2008. Right. Um, and, and in those cases, the effect of the economy is more ambiguous. They tend to predict fairly close races. Um, so, you know, there's lots of things that can leave, that can leave an imprint. Um, but the state of the economy, um, the conventions help remind people, uh, which party they tend to support and what the state of the country is. And, um, you know, those are the places I would start in, in thinking about that, at least. So there's one, you might call it a misperception. You might just call it sort of, the, I don't know if it falls into the category or not, but it's something you've written about uh, multiple times, which is called the Green Lantern Theory of the Presidency. And, you know, just so our listeners know, uh, it's basically the idea that the president can, through sheer force of will, basically do anything he or she wishes to do. And that if the president fails in his or her goals, then it's, you know, just basically a lack of willpower or leadership or some quality like that. Uh, and it's associated with the Green Lantern because, you know, he's uh, powered by his ring and his power is dependent on how much willpower he has. So, it's a bad way of thinking about politics. Oftentimes, if a president can't pass a law he or she wants to, it might be because public opinion is against it, or there's opposition and Congress will not pass whatever it is the president wants to do. Uh, and it's not really usually from a lack of willpower. It's often from other constraints. First, is sort of the Green Lantern theory of the presidency playing out at all in this elections in uh, in this election, in how voters are thinking about these things and how information is being processed, anything along those lines. Uh, I was wondering if you had kind of a, a good replacement re- metaphor where if the president is is not the Green Lantern, is there a better way to to think about the powers of the presidency? Uh, you, you know, can put up, I don't know, another pop culture icon or a superhero if you want to, or just not, or just describe, uh, you know, what you think a better way to think about uh, the powers of the president and what the constraints on that are. Yeah. That's a great question. I'm, I'm stumped for a good uh, metaphor. Uh, I welcome suggestions from the DC or Marvel universe from your listeners. <laughs> um, I, I don't know uh, what the best representation of that idea would be. Um, you know, I teach a whole class on the presidency. It's very complicated, right? But mm-hmm. you know, the fundamental divide people often miss is between the, the, the areas where the president has quite a lot of discretion and authority uh, like foreign policy and national security and the areas where they're, they're uh, quite deeply constrained by Congress, um, like in passing domestic policy legislation. Right, so there's, um, there are, our, our president actually has relatively weak formal powers under the Constitution despite mm-hmm. all the ideas that people have put out there. Um, so uh, the first question in terms of the Green Lantern theory of the presidency, in this election, I think it's a useful way to think about, uh, the Green Lantern theory is a useful way to think about Trump's campaign and what he's promised. Mm. To a greater extent than any recent campaign uh, that I, that at least that I can remember, yeah. Trump is a Green Lantern candidate. He is saying he will do things that are otherwise politically impossible because he will try harder or make better deals or whatever it is. There's a kind of, there's a kind of uh, magical thinking aspect to his claims. Now, every presidential candidate promises to accomplish things that are politically difficult or impossible. Uh, but Trump is unusual in how many of these he's been willing 
again, this is not unique to him. I think the 2008 campaign for Barack Obama had this flavor too. Uh, there were many people who thought hope and optimism was enough to uh, to win over Republicans to his side, um, uh, including possibly Obama himself. We don't know what he really thought, but he certainly mm-hmm. suggested uh, that he was about to uh, he was going to bring people together in a way that seemed impossible. Uh, it turned out that. He could only pass legislation when he had big Democratic majorities, and as soon as those went away, his ability to enact major policy changes went away as well. Democrats continued to believe that that idea, though, for years, and kept thinking if Obama only talked about the issues this way, or only tried harder to pass that bill, things would have been different. Imagine that instead of, you know, studying misperceptions in the 2000s and uh, 2010s and being a professor at Dartmouth College, you're undertaking research on the same subjects in the 1960s or the 1970s, and you're trying to figure out how these false beliefs spreads and how to combat them. And uh, I guess the question is, is there any difference between sort of today and back then? Because you could, uh, I could imagine an argument both ways. Some people might say, oh, the internet and the media landscape is so different. So uh, this is going to be a, a different play, a, a different sort of thing to study. Or you could say that a lot of this is rooted in human psychology, which is something we've talked about a good bit. So uh, this is essentially the same sort of uh, issue uh, over time. And then uh, the question about the future would be is um, a lot of people uh, seem to, in the media at least, seem to describe our current politics as kind of this post-factual wasteland where nobody has, you know, claims to truth, and uh, there's a lot of overblown uh, language around it. But it, it does seem that uh, there is room for improvement in terms of fact-checking, in terms of uh, making sure some of the things we're talking about, in terms of having institutions to uh, help make sure these misperceptions don't spread. So uh, what do you think the future looks like for uh, dealing with misinformation and getting right information in there? Those are great questions and really hard. Um, I may have to use these in my final exam in my class this <laughs> spring. Um, l- let, me, let me just say something that encompasses uh, both of those questions. I, I've, I'm uncomfortable with the idea that we're entering a post-truth or, or post-fact era, as some people have suggested, for precisely the reason that you mentioned earlier. The human psychology hasn't changed, and actually if you look back in history, there are lots of examples of misinformation, misperceptions in various forms. There, there's no golden age when people were extremely well informed about politics mm-hmm. and didn't hold false beliefs. Mm-hmm. We, we, we do our history a disservice when we think that existed, uh, it, it, in, in part because actually it understates the resilience of our democracy. We're still here, sure. despite the fact that most people have never known that much about politics and have always been vulnerable in different ways to misinformation. Um, if I were studying this in the 1960s and 1970s, of course, the problems would be very different. I think that the structure of the media, as you suggest, is, is was quite different then. The, the role of the mainstream media as gatekeepers was much more important. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, the salience of the Cold War and fear of communism was a much bigger factor. Um, and the alignment of the parties was very different. Right. So yeah. e- everything about how the political system worked 
differed. That was a very unusual time in this because it was the around the historical low point in polarization. Mm-hmm. So I think it, you know it, it, it's almost an anomalous period in American history, and we can have another podcast about why that is. Yeah. But it's important to avoid using that time as a as a reference period. Um, the mainstream media gatekeeping function may have also been it more or less. The, that was almost the height, the height of the establishment media's role as a gatekeeper. If you think of the the objective newsman, the Edward R. Murrow type. Uh, figure, th- those people were at their the peak of their powers around that time. So it's just a very unusual period. In terms of where we go from here, we're not returning to that time. We're not returning to that period anytime soon. Yeah. We're simply not going to have strong media gatekeepers in politics anymore. And there's no signs of the trend towards polarization reversing. Maybe the increases will slow or even stop, but we're not going to return to a depolarized era. So we need to think about how our political institutions and media institutions can work well in this new reality. Uh, It's here to stay. Uh, And it's not all bad in some ways, but it does have this problem that it can make us more vulnerable to to partisan misperceptions. And so uh, I think... I think we've seen, even in the 2016 campaign, journalists starting to rethink how they approach covering misinformation because the problem is so severe. And in particular because Donald Trump has breached norms of elite conduct uh, to a greater extent than any modern candidate. Regardless of what you think about him or whether you're going to choose to vote for him, uh, the inaccurate, the persistent repetition of false and unsupported claims uh, is without precedent in recent memory. And that creates real challenges. Um, and uh, the, the thing I would leave you and your and your listeners with is that we shouldn't just accept the idea that we're in a post-truth or post-fact era. In some ways, I'm, le- I'm, more, I'm concerned about that notion because it, 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 it implies a sort of acquiescence to... Uh, the persistence of misinformation that I don't think we should engage in. Uh, our, insti- our political institutions and norms uh, are, are not handling this problem well now, but they can handle it better. And yeah. what would be terrible is if we accepted this as how things work now. And we accepted that presidential candidates can engage in repeated, obvious, glaring misstatements of fact over and over again without consequence. That's an, that could be a terribly damaging thing for our democracy. I fear that much more than the challenges we face um, in terms of misinformation, which, which democracies have, have always faced. Next, Professor Jameson describes the debates through the prisms of voter learning, two mistrusted or distrusted nominees, and the undertow of social media. We're here with Professor Kathleen Hall Jamieson. She is the director of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania, and she is an expert in communications and uh, past and current debate uh, thinking. Let me ask you first, Professor, uh, you get to talk about uh, presidential debates every four years, and my first question is, what do you think will make the 2016 debates, in your mind, uh, different and important. This year we have a high level of negative 
audience response or public response to both of the major party nominees. We've never had a debate in which we had over 50% of the adult population thinking poorly of both candidates. If the debates are successful, some of that negative perception will erode and more people will think that the eventual victor is qualified to be president of the United States. That's my optimistic forecast and my sincere hope. One of the things that I had on my list of questions was to ask you how the candidates can use the debates in that trust and favorability because in the reporting I've done over the years, I've always been taught that it is hard to reverse uh, an impression, a first impression or a second impression. In debates, have we seen examples where that can be done? We've seen examples in which candidates' competence has, perceived competence has improved dramatically. That is generally the change in perception in the first debate, and the change usually affects the challenger candidate. It usually affects the less well-known candidate and the candidate most likely to have been caricatured in ads. And so the question is, has the public that has formed these negative impressions had the extended opportunity to view these candidates before and as a result is firmly grounded in its conclusion, or is the public's attitude based on superficial awareness of the candidates and hence can be changed? And it's very difficult to assess that, but we do know that the perceived competence of candidates has shifted as a result of public exposure, the perceived uh, candidate competence has shifted as a result of exposure to debate, so we know it's at least possible. Is there a way for uh, academics or researchers after these debates to analyze and assess, and maybe pollsters too, what kind of new information voters derive from watching some or, or all of a first debate or a second debate? How do we assess that new information? The, the studies that have been done go back to the, the first presidential general election debates, Kennedy-Nixon, 1960. And what they show is that those who watch debates are likely to learn. What they're likely to learn is candidate differentiation. So they can, as a result of debate exposure, more readily tell you what the candidate's positions are when the candidate's positions differ on key issues. Uh, that effect occurs across the population in part because most news doesn't provide contrast of information about candidates, and ads rarely show engagement on specific issues in ways that would build knowledge. And so one studies that by looking at pre- and post-debate knowledge levels. One also looks at that by putting in place panel data following the same people across time. And finally, in the 2000, 2004, and 2008 elections, we looked at that with a rolling cross-sectional model, which meant that we were surveying every day and so could, could look at day-to-day -day changes in amount of knowledge, particularly in relationship to something like a debate. Are you looking forward to looking at that data when we have a reality TV star, uh, we have a, a, a more traditional politician, we have two very well-known but uh, similarly disliked or unfavorable candidates? Is this going to, for an academic, be kind of an interesting, unique opportunity? Yeah, one of the things you would, you would hope that debates would do would increase the likelihood that people are casting a vote for their favored candidate rather than against the other candidate, it's healthier for governance to have votes be supporting someone and someone's issue agenda and endorsing someone's capacity to lead, rather than try to vote to keep someone else out of office. And I am looking very carefully this year as we field our surveys and our panels 
at whether or not some of these no votes, that is votes against someone, change into votes for a candidate. Now, that won't change the net vote. These people are still voting in one direction. But it changes the kind and quality of the vote because they are voting on different grounds. One of the things that Annenberg has written in its research is that uh, the percent of viewing households from 1960 to 2012, uh, when it comes to the presidential debate, seem to be cut in half uh, in terms of the percent of households. One of the things that were features that you also have highlighted is that nowadays um, Americans' viewers get information uh, beyond the networks. They obviously have cable television and social media. And in this particular debate and this cycle, we're watching how social media has played an important role, even for the candidates themselves. When you watch them on television, and we all try to engage in the debates, are there really two debates happening? Are the campaigns having to be savvy about what they're doing and saying as candidates on television, but also what they're doing simultaneously with social media? Yes, what you see in the debates is they can't, the campaigns are aggressively tweeting out information during the debates. And the, the, they're trying through advertising as well, because they can buy advertising online, to increase the context for people to view the substance of the debates. However, one of the things we know is that when, from our 2000 research, 2012 research, is that when you are tweeting or following in social media, because we aren't good at multitasking, you are paying less attention to the substance of the debate, and as a result, you're losing some knowledge. And the question becomes, as people engage increasingly, particularly the young and Hispanics, in smartphone access or computer access to debates, where they can multi-screen and as a result, multitask, can we find a way to have that multitasking increase knowledge rather than interfere with knowledge gain? Oh, that's interesting. One of the other elements that I think of as uh, different this year, and I know Secretary Clinton thinks of it as, as a different uh, situation, is the first female nominee up against a male nominee in a head-to-head -head debate. What do we know about gender and how that might affect the, the way that the viewers or the debate consumers uh, uh, calculate what they're learning or what they're taking away? Well, first, we have had a woman on the presidential debate stage before, but it was as a vice presidential nominee. It was Geraldine Ferraro who debated George Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, Geraldine Ferraro was uh, Walter Mondale's vice presidential nominee. The, but the, the gender factor is largely a, a function of whether or not there are cues in the environment that trips people's awareness that something that they consider gender inappropriate has been done. So, for example, when in the Senate context, Rick Lazio debating Hillary Clinton invaded her space in what seemed to be an inappropriate fashion, trying to get her to sign some sort of a statement, uh, the, the reaction to it was negative, and negative in part because there was a gender violation. Male candidate was reinforcing the stereotype of trying to dominate female candidate space. And so the, the candidates both need to be aware that there is a gender dynamic there and that some cues can make it more active. They can prime it and make it more salient in evaluation. Donald Trump does this periodically in what he says. When he says Hillary Clinton doesn't look like a president, for example, He's inviting us to ask, what do presidents look like? And those who can't imagine a female president then activate gender-based stereotypes. One of the things that putting Hillary Clinton on the presidential stage in a debate does is increases the likelihood that one sees a competent, articulate woman who is capable of handling the issues 
hence capable of being President of the United States and being Commander-in-Chief. And lastly, I wanted to ask you about the media. Uh, we see the media talked about, the news media talked about in every modern political cycle. But in this 2016 cycle, the media, news media, have been used or abused, depending on how you look at it, by the candidates uh, through the primaries. We've even heard President Clinton offer, uh, President Obama offer his advice to Secretary Clinton and talking about the media. Uh, in the debates, do the media, the moderators, become part of the teleplay in a, in a way that's interesting to watch and is important to how voters perceive or are persuaded? I recommend that after debates, people turn television off and get off social media and simply talk with family and friends about what was important. One of the problems with having multiple media streams talking to you about debates is that those kinds of discussions can displace learning. So when the media after the debate say, here's the so-called decisive moment, for example, they feature one thing to the exclusion of others. Often their decisive moment is meaningless, or in some cases, they're simply wrong. The media calling Ford's statement in 76 about no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe a gaffe was a misplaced interpretation. What Ford said was the peoples of Eastern Europe didn't consider themselves to be dominated. That was a very different statement. An unnuanced press reading increased the likelihood that those who watched the media commentary thought that, that Ford had faltered in the debate. Those who only watched the debate without that media commentary did not think any such thing. That's an effect of media coverage, not of debate exposure. We saw the same thing with Gore in the first debate, the first Gore-Bush debate of 2000. Those who watched the debate did not have problems with Gore's presentation or content. Those who heard the media commentary were more likely to hear the press frame that said that he had said that he went to the fires with Jamie Lee Witt, head of FEMA, when in fact he went with the deputy, and the girl he said was standing in the classroom actually now had a, had a desk. That fed the notion that Gore had demonstrated his lack of trustworthiness in the debate. That was a press frame consistent with the Republican ad frame. It disadvantaged Gore not with those immediately after the debate or during the debate, but rather those who consume media afterwards. We showed that in our research. So press framing after a debate can be pernicious in that it can misinform the public about what actually happened in the debate, redirect its attention to things that are inconsequential or wrong-headed, or feature things that weren't relevant to the voter and in the process extinguish learning that may have been more helpful in casting an informed vote. Having covered debates myself, just to follow up to conclude, I know that there's, you know, what it's like to go into the spin room where the campaign surrogates are trying to promote a particular line of discussion right after the debate has concluded. Is there a way for uh, the candidates, uh, if this occurs this time, to counter? Is there an effective way to counter that pernicious impact that can happen with that instant play-by-play -play that happens and afterwards, the analysis? One of the things that's productive about a social media environment is there are multiple voices in the commentary stream, and we as viewers can select among them. And that increases the likelihood that you're not going to have one single voice with a dominant narrative and reduces the likelihood as a result of the kind of effects that I worry about. The other phenomenon in social media that is productive is that individuals can engage their family and friends on social media as they watch debates and talk about debates. That should increase the likelihood that the issues that they learn about are those that mattered to them from the beginning and not issues they're superimposed out of a media frame or a media agenda. 
Terrific. Thank you so much, Professor. I really appreciate your taking the time, and we've really covered a lot of ground. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Take care. And finally, Emily Gooden talks with Professor Terry Madonna about Battleground, Pennsylvania. For candidate campaigning in Pennsylvania, it's all about location, location, location. The Keystone State has been reliably blue for Democrats, going with their presidential candidate since 1992. But Republicans have done well in the state in midterm elections and are hoping 2016 can be their year to put Pennsylvania's 20 electoral votes in the red. Terry Madonna, the director of the Franklin and Marshall College poll, explains how that can be done. The Democratic vote is increasingly concentrated in, in the cities, both the large and the small cities. The two big cities at either end of our state, Philadelphia East, uh, Pittsburgh in the West, President Obama won 13 counties, that's it, out of 67 mm. by 5.2 percentage points. And he, and he carried the, the two large cities, smaller cities east of the Susquehanna River, and importantly, the Philadelphia suburbs. That's where mm. the largest pool of swing voters live. It's virtually impossible to win Pennsylvania without winning the swing voters. In the four large suburban counties, let me put it this way, 1.2 million of 5.6 million votes cast in the presidential election in 2012 were cast in four counties. If you throw Philly in there, where Obama came out of the city with 588,000 votes, to his credit, you're at a third of the vote of the entire state. Throw Allegheny County, translation, Pittsburgh, you are over 40% of the voters of the state of Pennsylvania, and we're literally only talking about six counties out of 67. Republicans must win the rural parts of the state. They must win, particularly out in the southwest among the white, blue-collar workers and, and incidentally, Mitt Romney did win those counties out there. And then it's all about the Philadelphia suburbs. That's where the largest pool of swing voters live. If you don't win the Philly suburbs, it's virtually impossible to win the state simply because of the numbers and the nature of the voters in those districts. Now, what do the voters in those four counties you were talking about look like? Like, what does a swing voter look like? Are they college-educated? What's their race? Yep, they're, yep, they're white, they're college-educated, more women than men. Uh, and, and, in fact, on cultural issues, the Republican voters there tend to be liberal. Uh, gun control, uh, you go through the list of them. For gun control, concerned about the, about the climate, can throw that into the mix uh, for gay marriage. Now, they tend to be a little fiscally conservative. So that's another element in this, and you've got to be careful about the spending. Right now, the reason that Hillary Clinton is winning my state, even though the lead has narrowed considerably, is she is still beating Trump by double digits in the Philadelphia suburbs. And to win Philadelphia and those suburbs, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, in addition to campaigning there themselves, have sent in their big guns. Hello, Philadelphia. Oh, it is good to be back in Philly. 
Can everybody please give Patrick a big round of applause for that great introduction? President Obama was in Philly last week to get out the vote for Clinton. And the time has come for me to pass the baton on, but I know that Hillary is going to take it, and she's going to run that race, and she will finish that race. And that's why I'm with her. That's why I'm fired up. That's why I'm ready to go. And I need you to join me. I need you to work as hard for Hillary as you did for me. And Donald Trump was in Delaware County last month, one of those swing counties, to tout his child care plan. And he brought along daughter Ivanka Trump to help him out. I traveled around the country with my father, stories about the hardships caused by our existing child care system, one that is too expensive, too outdated, and too inaccessible, come up time and time again. Given its past support for Democrats, logic might say that Pennsylvania, where Clinton has led steadily in the polls, wouldn't be considered a battleground. But the candidates are campaigning heavily throughout the state and spending, spending, spending on ads. So what makes it still a swing state? Well, that's a great question. I mean, the, the, the advantage the Democrats have literally is, you know, about a 900,000 voter registration edge, or as I like to put it, about 800,000 active uh, active voter registration edge as opposed to people who are just on the rolls, as you know. Yeah. So when it all comes down to it, uh, this is a Democratic state in presidential elections because the turnout among African Americans is higher, the turnout among millennials is higher, and you don't have that same turnout in midterm elections. The Republicans swept our state in 2010 in 2014, they control the legislature, they control, they own 13 of 18 congressional seats. The Democrats have one congressional seat west of the Susquehanna River, translation, two-thirds of the geography of the state. It sounds like a complicated state to run in, if you're running statewide. Yeah, it is. I mean, you're trying, to, and, and let's take a look at it for Trump and what it means, and this is what's fascinating. He has to appeal to the conservative blue-collar voters who are not culturally liberal, put another way, culturally conservative. At the same time, he has to appeal to college-educated, culturally liberal, college-educated voters in the Philadelphia suburbs and in the Lehigh Valley. Mm. So he's trying to walk that middle ground between the natural supporters that he, that he has because of the arguments about manufacturing and trade and the fact that these workers have been left behind versus the folks who are in higher incomes, college educated, uh, you know, who have are culturally liberal and who, uh, you know, will vote and have voted democratic in the last six presidential elections. So that's his challenge to walk that tightrope and then to ensure the turnout's high in other regions of the state where Republicans traditionally win, like South Central Pennsylvania, uh, that's all a must. Turnout, turnout, where they vote, would only be a fool's errand to predict who's going to win. I'm Emily Gooden for Real Clear Politics. <laughs>